this podcast is gonna be so fresh and you know why? Because I just brushed my teeth. This is Vinam for the Nixers podcast. On today's episode we're gonna discuss the Unix executables. We're gonna deal with the formats, the definition of what is an executable, the usual process of how an executable is actually executed, which operating system uses which executable and the Unix word, historically what happened and now what, what should we do with this information, are there some tools we can use to analyze binaries, executables, etc. This is gonna be today's subject, Unix executable. Let's go on with this subject. What is an executable? We have to define what we're gonna discuss throughout this podcast and it's gonna be pretty long. So brace yourself. What is an executable? An executable is something that causes a computer to perform some task according to encoded instructions. Now it's an it's an opposition to a data file which must be parsed by another program to be meaning, meaningful. Uh, so it means you have another program that parses the file and then it means something to the computer or to you. For example, you have the images and videos. They don't actually mean anything for the computer, but they do mean something for us. And that's what we mean by data files. The instructions of the executable are usually in machine code. They are read by the CPU and so they are CPU dependent. They depend on the CPU architecture. An executable once it's compiled will only work on a particular family of processor because the machine code, the instructions, they, they differ within families of processors. So the Intel CPUs, they have their own uh, set of instructions and so you have to recompile the, the code if you go from one, one machine to another. It also differs depending on the hardware. So let's say you have some instruction for some certain CPU or GPU, then you have to recompile it, obviously. An exception to this are the fat binaries. And this is sort of like a parenthesis for the fat binaries, and I'm gonna explain this. The fat binaries include the code for multiple hardwares and a single executable. It makes it bigger though, obviously because you have to include the code for multiple platforms. There aren't many implementations of this in the wild uh, and, and the Unix word particularly, but the most relevant example are the OS X and the iOS binaries, which are architecture independent. They are fat binaries, which explains why their binaries are huge and you must have noticed this. Back to the topic, we've said the instructions were in machine code, but more generally they can be in any format and interpreted and reconstituted into bytecode by a scripting language or a middleman program that will just do just-in-time compilation or anything else that the machine could understand. For example, you could have an emulator like the Java bytecode, anything that's uh, that would interpret those instructions. 
But today we're not discussing those types of executables. We're discussing the ones specific to the operating system. The ones that interact directly with the application binary interface. So what's that application binary interface? Also referred to as ABI. And why are we only talking about binaries that interact with it? The ABI is the binary interface that the operating system offers to other programs to interact with it at the level of machine code. It's at this level that we determine how function calls are made, the so-called uh, system calls. It's the job of the compiler, the program that will translate the source code into binary format, to comply to this ABI. So that's what the ABI is. Now, why are we talking about it? The ABI has a direct relation to the format of binaries because the ABI defines specificities that the executable should have, such as the size, layout, and alignment of data types inside the executable, the calling conventions, how function arguments are passed and return values received, how the paramet parameters are put on the stacks, the arguments on the command line, how the application makes system calls to the operating system. So this is the most important layer that the executable will interact with. And the last one is, and you don't need to remember, the most important, because an executable can't do much without system calls without this interaction with the rest of the system. That means the ABI, without the ABI, the, the executable means nothing. Uh, how do you interact with the system if you can't have a layer to interact with it? So that's a pretty rough uh, definition of what an executable is, but that's only the first part of the explanation. What is the process that an executable go through to be executed? And obviously we're focusing on the Unix world, but this on, on the Unix world, but uh, this also applies to most operating systems. So the usual process of an executable. The source code is compiled into machine code directly, or it could be compiled into an object file of some sort, and then from the object files they are then linked to libraries and they create an executable, which has the format specific to the operating system. And notabene on the linking libraries and stuff like that. What are libraries? Libraries, they are a set of instructions and resources stored in an object file on the system so that other programs can call them directly instead of including them in their binary which would take much more space because you have a lot of code that is repeated over and over again. This is referred to as dynamic linking, the process in which the symbols are just stored in the, are just stored in the program and then take meaning when linked to the library. The process of dynamic linking doesn't happen when the executables are statically linked to the library. Statically linked means the library is joined at compile time. It's part of the executable. So you have two ways of doing it. Are you dynamically linked or you're statically linked? One advantage of the static linking is that the binary is transportable and that it avoids 
something that we refer to as DLL hell or dependency hell. Now we close that nota bene on the linking and libraries. So we have objects, files, and source code, and we compile it to executable, link them, etc. Object files are in something we call container format. Or sometimes we refer to it as, execut as executable format because those object files also have the same format as executables. But the naming convention changes depends depending on the situation. An object file and an executable can have and in most cases have the same format, but object files are most of the time not executables. But in the Unix world, they do have the same format, and we'll go into more depth a bit later. Those formats are divided into sections, such as the dot text, the executable code, the dot data, the static variables, the dot row data, static constants, etc. So they have some, some sections that have specific meaning and, and specific way of being executed by the ABI. And we're going to discuss those sections a bit later. So enough of the compiled and linking. Let's execute that thing. How is it executed after being compiled and linked? So when the executable is executed, it is loaded into the memory and the system reads it according to the format it understands. It jumps to the start of the address space, it finds the entry point of the program and starts ex executing it. Now, the part of the operating system that is responsible for this is called the loader. It's an internal part of the kernel which is responsible for loading programs and libraries into memory and then it prepares them for execution. Once loaded, the operating system can pass the control back to the program. So it finds the first start of the program, then it leaves it uh, to execute the instructions. On Unix, particularly, the loader is handled by the exec VE system call. Basically, it just executes the program. So it does the following. It validates the permission, the memory requirements, etc. Everything that is related to the, met to the metadata around the execute executable. It copies the image from the disk into the main memory, the program. It copies it into the memory. It copies the command line arguments into the stack, if we have any command line arguments at all. It initializes the registers, the stack pointer, and the most important, it initializes the register which is the instruction which is the IP instruction pointer and it points it to the start of the program so let's not forget that an executable interacts with the rest of the system they are linked with the rest they are part of a platform so that's how the execution takes place now what features could we have in an executable? What makes one type of executable different than another one? What can you include in an executable? So you know a bit now about how in general it's executed and what it's supposed to mean an executable. So what features can it can it have? Are there particular format that they are stored in? First of all, the first main features that an executable can have is its architecture. 
the way it's compiled into machine code, uh, the way it's compiled for a certain processor. So most commonly found we have the i386 32-bit processors and the 8664 64-bits. So usually because the compiler compiles to adhere to the system ABI, so if the ABI is in 32-bit, the binary should be in 32-bit. Now here's a little bonus point, a little more information. 64-bit systems can read instruction from 32-bit systems. 32-bit systems have pointer size of 32-bit. That's what can be held into memory registers. Uh, for 64-bits, it's 64-bits. Now one issue here is that the 64-bits pointer can have an overhead, they're slower. But that 64-bit instructions are faster than 32-bit instruction. So little story here. In 2011, some Linux developers came up with something that takes the best of both worlds. They called it the X32 ABI. So it has both 32-bit pointers and 64-bit arithmetic. So it's both, uh, uh, it has the, the best of both worlds, I guess. Other than the architecture, some feature that executables can have are the, the file extension. On some operating system, a file is not executable if it doesn't end by a certain extension, .x, .exe. However, we should note here that on Unix, it's not mandatory to have an extension for an executable. They just don't have any extension. Instead of that, we have metadata at attached to the executable, uh, like the permission, if, if you have the permission to execute it or not. So it shows, it shows directly if it's an executable or not. Now, there's a lot of things about metadata attached to those executable. We're gonna name a few like um, the build IDs, the signatures, comments, etc. One of those metadata that we might take for granted but really is not is the explicit processor declaration that an executable says I can be executed on 32-bit. It wasn't always the case. There are some types of executable that don't say that and it's um, assumed that they do work on 32-bit only. And probably because th at the time they were created there was only that sort of architecture. Or probably again because they are uh, proprietary so they only work on certain platforms. Okay, another metadata is the digital signature. What does it mean, digital signature? Uh, it means code signing to confirm that the code hasn't been altered. So it's a signature that the kernel will verify and won't execute the executable if it's not signed. So inside your executable you have a sort of a header that says uh, X person did compile this binary so you can execute it. It was signed. Again, more metadata that we could have in an executable. Uh, it could be about uh, including an, an icon inside the executable. Okay. Executable can also have added sections called arbitrary memory sections. 
and on Unix most formats do have this. It allows other programs or the program itself to access the information there and it's accessed faster because it's stored right in the memory during execution and it stays there. So you can add a, uh, a bunch of new section and use them the way you want. Now two other features that might again be taken as granted are the string and symbol tables. Those are where the strings and the executable and the symbols stored. The symbols are the functions that needs to be called when the and, and they are linked and resolved. Uh, yeah, so those two are taken for granted, but uh, they're they're not always available everywhere. So what? So what's what's the the difference and common types of executable on Unix. We went over the definition, the possible features of an executable, uh, the process an executable goes through. We went over a lot of things, but so what? We didn't we didn't even deal with the implementations and where they are used. So we're gonna do that now. Let's talk about which Unix operating system uses which executable format or object format by default. And we can use, actually in the Unix world, we can use interchangeably the executable format and object format because objects format use the same format as executable format. So we'll go over six distribution and we'll get the general idea from this. Let's first, before that, before that, let's first name the possible executable formats that we could have in the Unix world what were the format that we can have or we had so let's and we'll go into details of those later about what formats has which feature but we have to name them before saying which distribution has which format we have the a.out a.out which is the oldest unix like format it was actually named by ken thompson in 1968 okay there's the cuff and ecuff which was introduced in the Unix system 5 to replace the a.out. So it was a sort of improvement because a.out had issues with dynamic linking, but not a great one because it was a bit too limited. Limited numbers of sections, of lengths for the section names, of symbolic debugging, etc. So real-world implementations of CUF were mostly violating those uh, standards of CUF. And so they were renamed as extensions of CUF, such, such as ECUF, XCUF, etc. And we have the, last but not least, the ELF, ELF executable and linking format. Also published in the System 5 ABI, but unlike A.out and CUF, ELF are very flexible. So those are the object formats on Unix. Uh, let's get with the operating systems. Linux used A.out until the kernel 1.2 and then it switched to ELF. Minix switched from A.out to ELF and the 3.2.0 release. 
NetBSD uses the ELF format. I couldn't find the date it switched or if it ever switched. OpenBSD switched from A.out to ELF in 2003 and the release 3.4. FreeBSD switched from A.out to ELF and the version 3.0, though it was considering itself to be from the end quote classic camp of and quote proven technology. Dragonfly BSD also uses the ELF format and I couldn't also find the date it switched from A.out or if it ever switched. So ELF is sorta used a bit everywhere and a lot and it's even used a lot in the gaming console world from PlayStation operating system to the Wii to the Nintendo DS etc. They all use it. Now the only weirdos out there in the gang of the Unix are the non-free Unix systems which use proprietary uh, formats. Mac OS uses a format called Mac O, Macho, I don't know, Mac object format. And as we've mentioned this is a fat binary so it contains the code for multiple CPU families but and the Mac word that might work because Apple makes its own hardware so yeah now let's go into detail on every one of those formats the a.out, cough, the elf let's go so a.out means assembler output executable the term as we've mentioned was coined by Ken Thompson as we've said it's the oldest object format used on Unix. One fun thing to know is that a.out still remains the default output name of the executable that is created by most compilers, even though they aren't in the a.out format. And that surprised me, because I thought, I really thought, like, why a.out? So a.out had many variants, such as omagic and magic, qmagic, etc. And they all have uh, little differences, but I, I really won't go over them. They're very minimal. The a.out format has seven sections, and most formats have those seven sections also, but they have a different way of being, uh, being used and different limitations. We have the exec header. It contains the parameters used by the kernel to load the binaries, so it tells the kernel some information like the size, the the architecture, etc. Uh, and it tells also the linker to link it to some other stuff. So this is a mandatory section. We have the text segment. So it con this one is the part that contains the machine code, the actual machine code that are loaded into memory and ex executed. And it's read-only. There's the data segment. Uh, it's loaded into the writable memory, so it contains variables. There's the text relocation, it contains records used by the link editor to update pointers, blah blah blah. Data relocation, it's like the text relocation, but for data segment. And most importantly, the symbol table and string table. String table contains the character strings corresponding to the symbol tables like what's the name of this function call etc or if there are strings in the program 
and the symbol tables contain a record used by the link editor, the linker, to cross-reference the address of named variables and functions. So if there are functions used inside the programs, they are in the symbol tables. If there are functions used and they, they need to be linked with the linker, they are also there. Okay, so that's about eight out and the seven section. We have the exec, the exec header, text segment, data segment, text and data relocation, and the symbol and string table. Now with cuff. Cuff stands for Common Object File Format. This format was used after out, but before ELF on the Linux Unix systems. This was meant as a replacement for out, a sort of upgrade. Cuff executables have more sections than out and have better debugging features and the executables are not loaded in contiguous blocks. So that also related to how uh, how different those executables are handled by the ABI. The cuff symbolic debugging information consists of symbolic string names for program functions and variables and line number information used for setting breakpoints and tracing execution. So basically it's a bit more flexible for debugging. Now let's go through the ELF. ELF has become the standard Unix object executable format. It's very extensible. The header has a tag for which ABI it was compiled for, which architecture it was compiled for, and a whole bunch of stuff. So this is one of the features that has made it uh, easy to adopt by many platforms and that's why it's most widely used. It's compliant with many ABI. So it also has seven sections which are basically the same as the a.out, the exec header which contains parameters used by the kernel to load the binary file into the memory and execute it, like the architecture and how the linker can link it to the libraries it needs. Now for more information on the headers, and because ELF is actually used most on, on most Unix operating systems, you can check the main page, main 5 ELF, the 5 is for file format. Or you can se check the wiki page on Wikipedia, and you're going to get an explanation of which certain headers are used for what and what they mean. Uh, for instance, we have the entry point where the program starts. So when ex executed by the kernel, kernel, it knows where it needs to put the instruction pointer. And it's the E underscore entry header field. Okay, so we set seven sections, exec header, the text segments, which also like the a.out contains the actual machine code. We have the data segments. So it initializes data loaded into writable memory and text segment is in read-only memory and also text relocations and data relocation and symbol table and string table yeah so those are the same seven sections but most importantly you might want to check the exec header by checking the main page of the elf 
So ELF has a lot of nice features that can be added to it because it's flexible. You can add sections other than those seven sections, as we've said. One of those features with which we've mentioned before, but that we didn't say is available in a binary and an executable, is the signing of the binary. So th there's a feature to sign ELF executable. I don't know if it's implemented in most operating system, but it's it's used a lot by package managers. I mean, not a lot, but it's pretty new. It's used also in the uh, UEFI, the bootloaders. Yeah. So also it can be extended with icons. Elf can be extended with icons. But it's also a sort of extensible features. It's not there built in, but you can you can add it over. And I, I haven't seen it much used. So the, the compiler can also add notes to the executable. So it adds sections for notes. And that section can be used for tagging and versioning. And that one is used a lot. You get the build ID, and then the package manager of the, of the distribution will check this build ID if the executable is at the right version. Yeah, so now, now what? We went over what's an executable, what's the process of loading it into memory, linking it, put it putting it into machine code. We went over what possible types we could have in the Unix world, which distribution or Unix operating system use which version, and all those formats, what they they had specific in them. Now, now what? Uh, now we get all that information. That information. What are we gonna do with it? We can we can learn a lot actually. We we can use a bunch of tools that we have and analyze our binary to help us understand how the system works. First, because the most widely used is ELF, we want to kind of focus on this format because it's sort of like the de facto nowadays. So we have a bunch of useful tools for analysis. First one, most obvious one, the man page. Check the man page for, for the ELF executable. You get a bit about what header does what, what section does what. Now, second most useful tool is the read elf. It's a command called read elf. It helps you explore the binary and check some stuff inside of it. So you can check the dynamic linking, the symbols, the headers with the a dash h flag. Uh, and you can clearly see the magic header because you're gonna know when you execute read elf that elf have ma a magic header, a specific uh, series of hex. That means it's an elf executable, and it's clear because in the magic string it's written elf. So it also shows when you use uh, read elf specific things such as for which architecture or which ABI the binary has been compiled for which byte order etc etc. There's a lot of fun stuff to learn with the read elf. So execute it on one program and you'll see.
Now let's name a few tools that are useful also for exploring and understanding those ex executable. We mentioned readelf. There's also LDD to list the linked libraries. And now that we've went over the symbols and symbol tables, etc., and the format, we know that LDD just goes over the symbol tables. There's obg dump, object dump, and as the name implies, it dumps info about the object. And you can also li list uh, the dynamic links with object dump if you do the dash r flag. The nm tool, which lists the symbols from an object, it's a tool specific to list only symbols. So it fetches things from the symbol tables of an executable. There's the file utility, a command that, that is named file. And it's very well known. So it gives info about the files, but the, the nice thing about it is that when you do it on an executable, it returns stuff such as the object format, the architecture, the ABI, the build ID. Now another one that is well known is the size program. It gives you some cool info about the size of every section in an executable, the text, data, BSS, etc. There's hex dump if you want to do the analyze, uh, analysis manually. Now a bunch of bonus tools that you can install with the elf utils utilities and the pax utils. We mentioned LDD. There's one that is called LDD3. It's like LDD, but it has a levels to show dependencies. There's dump elf to dump the internal elf structure. There's a sim tree to display a leveled output for symbols. There's um, a bunch of cool thing. And if you want to check the dynamic linked libraries, now that you know about a bunch of tools, now you, you, there's many ways to do it. There, there are many ways to do things with all those, uh, those tools and programs. So let's take the example of how to list the linked libraries. You can use nm-d, object-dump-r, read-elf-d, you can use LDD, I think that's the most simple one, or you can use LDD3. There are multiple also other than programs. You can use uh, uh, programming languages to analyze the binary, the executable. So there are a bunch of libraries for parsing ELF. Uh, for example, there's one in Python called PyELF Tools. And I found a, a nice tutorial, someone linked me on uh, IRC, where he explains how to inspect an executable that has multiple sections uh, using that PyELF tool. So yeah, we went over a lot of things here. And that's impressive. We can actually understand what ELF and all those other executables do, how they're loaded into memory, what's their place in the, op in the operating system, etc. That's about it. Very long podcast. And we've learned a lot along the way. And I hope you did too. I hope it's a bit less mystified. And yeah, you can check the show notes and I'm going to try to put 
to put some uh, transcript of this podcast so maybe if someone cannot listen to it he could he can read it or check references yeah so last week we were talking about screencast or webcast and uh, we we still haven't had a lot of inputs well we didn't have a lot at all but yeah I'm still waiting for those and this week what did I do uh, I finally implemented the lab color space for URNN and the lab color space is very very cool it's sort of like it's a study that has been done by optician uh, that, that know how the cones in the back of your eyes take colors with light and which color you focus on more and and then it creates a color space based on that so it's not shaped like a square like the RGB it's more like uh, an oval so yeah so I converted the colors to color space and then yeah so it solved a problem that we had with the URNN anyway yeah and that's about it for the executables. I hope you had a really wonderful time learning about them. And have a nice week. This was Venom for the Nixers podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs>